This is the third hour on mental health and depression, thinking about suicide, coming back, starting over, all that sort of thing. And I've titled this particular hour on uh, mental health as Magnificent Defeat. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It comes about because several years after the events which I'm talking about on this particular podcast episode, I met at the a church in Raleigh, the White Memorial Presbyterian Church, with the minister, Dr. Art Ross, whom I knew, and had shared with him some of the writings that I had done, which formed the basis for a book which I wrote about all this many years later called Flame Out, From Prosecuting Jeffrey McDonald to Serving Time to Serving Tables. And I wanted to share with him, I don't remember how this all came about, the story that I just told at the end of the last episode when I was thinking about driving to Hilton Head, taking my life and my daughter Stacy, uh, using laughter and that sort of thing to get me out of my funk, I would say. So I shared it with him, and uh, he read it, gave me a book which he wanted me to read, which was a spiritual book called Magnificent Defeat. It's a book that is based upon the Garden of Gethsemane, which, as you know, is the story of the night before Jesus is crucified. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane that this cup might pass from him. But if it is not to pass, then thy will be done, and he will go on and do it. And the concept being that in our lives as individuals, all of us at some point in time go through our own private Gethsemane. It's, a, it's really a part of being human. And we have to go through this and go through a difficult period of time we do not want to go through. But if we will do that, if we will do that, we might well come out the other side a better person and in much better shape than when we started our journey through it. One of the best postcards I ever got from one of my former senior partners in Charlotte with the law firm that I worked at sent me a postcard saying that very same thing just weeks after uh, I crashed and burned and left the law firms. That would have been in January of 1993 that I got that postcard. So have an, I have an affinity for the concept of magnificent defeat. But before you get to the magnificent part, I'm still in the defeated part here at first. And so it was in the summer of 1993 when I was going through a period of time where I was not employed very well. I wasn't doing much of anything. I had worked part-time as a cook at a place called the Border Cafe, which was a Tex-Mexican place owned by the same people who owned 42nd Street Oyster Bar making $5.50 an hour. I cooked quesadillas. I didn't even know what a quesadilla was when I started working there, but they had a big card, and I, I was pretty good on making them so long as I could do one at a time slowly. But if a busload of senior citizens or other people came in and wanted 10, I was in a lot of trouble, and so were they. So as it was, my lawyers and Dr. Spalding thought, that in the summer of 1993, particularly in August, I should stop working there because apparently 
and I don't recall what it was. I was not doing well. And the reason I was not doing well in part was I had stopped taking Prozac on my own and had not told anybody. And the reason I stopped taking Prozac was it cost money. I didn't have it to, to go spend 80 bucks or 90 bucks for a month for the pills that I should take because it was expensive, particularly when you don't have any money. And so I stopped, which apparently caused me to do crazy things again. I don't remember what they were. The only reason I can tell you on this podcast that I was doing that is because I remember reading a letter that Dr. Spalding hand-delivered to my attorneys in late August of that year, in which she said that she believed that I should not attend the arraignment on my indictment the following Monday and enter a plea of guilty or not guilty because I didn't have the mental competency or wherewithal to enter such a plea. That ain't good. So, Colin Willoughby, the district attorney, scheduled a hearing in Superior Court from a Superior Court judge to determine whether or not I would go to Dorothea Dix Hospital in Raleigh for 60 days for treatment and evaluation. That's not a place you want to go. But anyway, we have a hearing. Goes back and forth. It goes on for about an hour, hour and a half. Finally, Wade Smith, one of my two lawyers, walks back to me. I'm sitting at the council table. And he says, you know, we've been at the bench in a bench conference. He said, Jim, I don't know what the judge is going to do. He, he may send you to Dorothea Dix. And sitting there in the courtroom, I looked at Wade and I said, Wade, if he sends me to Dorothea Dix, I will go. I won't cause any fuss. I will behave myself and do all that I'm supposed to do. But there will come a time when 60 days are gone, and I will be free of there. And when I'm free and when I come back, wait, I am going to come find you. And when I find you, wait, I'm going to kill you. Well, that alarmed him. It's not the thing you say in court. So he goes back to the bench and tells the judge, I've just threatened to kill him if he sends me to Dorothea Dix. And the judge responds some along the lines of, well, we can't have that. And so they discussed it a little bit more and decided to send me to Dr. Seymour Halleck at Chapel Hill, a forensic psychiatrist, on an outpatient basis, which is what I did for the rest of the fall. I go see Dr. Halleck. He had turned out to be uh, a doctor who had examined McDonald, apparently, sometime early in the legal proceedings in that case. I didn't know that then. I visited with him oh, four, five, six times at the hospital in Chapel Hill. He does his own evaluation and markup of me. He said, Jim, I, there's no question in my mind that you are totally bipolar. I don't know why Dr. Spalding hasn't seen that, but I, I think you're bipolar. You don't shut up. You won't let me get a word in edgewise. You don't trust your lawyers. You think you could do better than they do. You think you're a better lawyer than they are? I laughed, and I said, well, I think I could. He said, see? And so if you pleaded guilty, Jim, they'd throw it out because it wouldn't be a voluntary plea. So I just sighed, just like I just did. I just sighed. Okay, I understand what I got to do. And so it was that... I came back home. This is the late fall of 1993. I'm back on Prozac. No more bad incidents or anything like that is going on. And um, 
I meet with Wade and Rick at Wade's law office. They, they want me to plead guilty to all the criminal charges against me in the indictment with no plea bargain agreement. And I said, who does that? Nobody does that, Wade. He said, well, Jim, that's what Colin don't want to give you a deal, and we don't think you should take one even if he offers one. And then I started in on telling different things. I talked to my friend Bill Daddy, whom I referenced to the SBI agent in the last segment, as to the fact that, uh, you know, he had, he has some ideas of what I could do to make this go down a little bit better for me. And so Wade gets looks at me in disgust, gets up from behind his chair in, in his office. It's not a large office. Comes over where I'm sitting in a wing chair, and he hits me across the face or across the forehead. Not hard, but it gets my attention. I get stunned. I said, why did you do that? He said, Jim, if you don't wake up, you're, you're never going to get well. You will never get well. There's only one way back for you. You have to take it. You have to take it all. You have to be like Gandhi. You have to take it all and said, I'm here to plead guilty. I did these things. I want to be punished. And I said to what I do not want to be like Gandhi. Wade, he dies. Wade says, I don't care. And then he said, Jim, I tell you what, I want you to go home tonight. And I want you to read the Sermon on the Mount. I said, where is it? He looked at me in disbelief. And he said, Jim, it's in the Bible. I said, well, wait, I know it's in the Bible. He said, it's in the book of Matthew. It's actually in the fifth chapter of Matthew. So I go home. Over the next day or so, I read the Sermon on the Mount, which is quite long. And I come back a few days later and tell him, okay, I've read, I read it, Wade. I read the Sermon on the Mount. Can you tell me why I was supposed to read it? He said, Jim, there's a sentence in there. I don't remember which verse it is, but there's a sentence in there. And that says, if someone wants you to walk with them one mile, you should walk with them two miles. If someone wants you to walk with them one mile, you should walk with them two miles. And I looked at him, I said, so you're saying this, trying to say, I need to plead guilty to everything, even though most people don't. He said, that's right. I looked at him, I said, and so what do you think will happen to me if I do that? He said, Jim, if you do that, you will get your life back. It's the only way. If that's what you want, you want your life back, that is the way to get it. You will have more riches than you ever thought possible if you do this. Almost nobody does this, Jim but we're asking you to consider doing this. So I looked at him and I said, okay, I will consider it. I haven't agreed, but I will consider it. And I did consider it for several weeks, talked to Dr. Spalding about it, talked to Dr. Halleck about it. I'm sure talked to my family and friends about it, but nobody could make the decision but me. But I was tired. It had been a long year. It had not been a fun journey. So one day I talked to Rick and Wade either by phone or in the office, I don't recall which, and said, I'm ready to do this. I will do it this afternoon if you want to do it. 
We didn't do it that afternoon, but we did it pretty soon thereafter in early December over a two-week period of time. This fall in 1993, deciding to get on with it and come to terms with the charges against me and try to bring this phase of my awful year to some conclusion was the beginning of getting better. I won't say that it was the beginning of lifting the depression, but it helped. I had made a decision. I decided what I wanted to do. And I continued to see Dr. Spalding. I continued to take Prozac. And I was going to go forward, come what may. Regardless of what the judge did, I was going to go forward. And so it came to be that I did. On the first Monday after Thanksgiving, in 1993, I drove alone to the Wake County Courthouse. I say alone because I didn't want anybody in my family to go with me. They hadn't gotten, they hadn't done any of this. I didn't think they should have to sit through watching me plead guilty. So I went in and did that. I had no idea what would happen. The Superior Court judge whom I pleaded guilty in front of is a very fine judge. I had practiced before him on some civil matters. I don't think any criminal matters. The people in Fedful didn't like him too much because his nickname was Maximum Height. His name was, it was Chip Height from Henderson, North Carolina. I didn't know his nickname was Maximum Height, meaning he tends to give people as much time as he oftentimes can do so in criminal cases. I wanted probation, of course. I didn't want to go to jail or prison. Wade and Rick said I needed to be prepared for that. And so it was that um, between the week of pleading guilty, which astounded the judge that I was going to do that with no plea agreement, he asked me several times, was I sure that I wanted to do that? Because I couldn't appeal his decision regardless of you know, what he gave me. And I said yes. I don't know whether my legs were shaking or not when I said it, but I was... I had made up my mind I was going to do this, and what the heck, I was going to get through it. I also made up my mind, folks, that regardless of what he gave me, regardless of what he gave me, I would do it. The time for thinking about taking my own life had passed. I was not going back there to that place in my life again, ever. I want to say on suicide, that, well, I'm not a doctor. My experience is, for me, it was a moment in time. And when the time passed, I was okay. I don't mean that I sat there and just waited for the clock to turn to a new day or a new time. But in the interim period, I did things. I saw people. I talked to people. 
I was not alone. I did not draw the drapes. I opened the blinds. I went out. And people told me what they thought. I continued on to do the best that I could. I think that helps. I oftentimes think that in terms of suicide, if you could just get to the person who's considering it, just get to that person and give them some time. Get them away from what they're thinking about. You might save a life. You know, everybody talks about having to call 911 when there's an emergency anywhere in the United States. Well, you know, the Congress has, has a new law and a new telephone number. It's 988. 988 is a telephone number you can call to get help on the issue of suicide. You should write that number down and give it to your friends and people you know. Give it to your kids and your grandkids and your parents and anyone you know. 988. They didn't have that then. Anyway, during that intervening week, I uh, spoke with a couple of friends of mine to a group, student body group at uh, St. Mary's High School and Girls School in Raleigh. <laughs> I wound up ushering in church the Sunday before I pleaded guilty. I mean, before I was sentenced, I'm sorry. I mean, they were short on usher. I couldn't believe that they wanted me to do it, and I agreed to do it, but I did. And then in midweek, I was interviewed by Charlie Gaddy, who was with Channel 5. He's sort of the water cronkite of Channel 5 News back then. And uh, I was on a pre-taped interview that would air on Sunday before I was sentenced because he said, Jim, you're in the news, and I like to talk to people in the news. I said, great. So I didn't agree to it initially, but he asked me to contact my lawyers to see if they would think it was a good idea. And they said, yeah, so you need to do it. I said, well, either one of you won't want to go while I do it. They said, no, we don't need to do that. You can do it on your own. Who does that? I don't know. But Charlie asked me a softball question. I always remember when he asked me the question was, Jim, you're going to be sentenced on Monday. But you've got lots of friends that were influential, and I hope nothing bad will happen to you as a result. I hope, don't think anything bad will happen to you. And I looked at Charlie, and I said, Charlie, let me tell you something. I don't know who these influential friends are that you are speaking about, but they're not going to be there speaking for me on Monday. I'm on my own. They didn't do anything. I did it. And I've got to be responsible. I'm there to be sentenced. I'm going to do the best I can and hope for the best. But I'm not asking for any special treatment or any special favor. Which is, I think, the way a person should do. This was all a part of coming back. It was all a part of my own personal coming back and confronting the reality in which I had placed my life. I got an active sentence three years, but with parole, I could be out in three months. It was one month to a year, which is what happened. A little over three years in minimum security. 
I was on work release for Senator Robert Morgan. I didn't do much for him, but I was there for three months. Actually, I was released twice. The first time by mistake when they had miscomputed my time. And I went back for about an additional two weeks. On the day that I went back, I got out of the car and walked up to the fence to go into Wake Correctional. And it was really crowded. And uh, all the inmates were there watching to see what was going to happen. I think they sort of wanted to see something on television because, you know, prison's sort of boring. And uh, this was some excitement for the day. And one of the newscasters from the Durham television station said, Jim, we've just talked to the pro board and they recognize that this is their mistake and they've apologized to you publicly. What do you want to say back to the pro board? This was my chance. This was my chance to say what I wanted to say to the pro board. And so I said, you know, we, we all make mistakes. And, uh, the pro board is not the reason that I'm here. I am the reason that I am here. And so if they have made a mistake, and we all do, that's okay. I'm the one that made the real mistake. I also think that's what you do. If you have the chance to take a shot at somebody or to be graceful, always choose to be graceful. Don't choose to take in a shot at somebody, particularly if it's a cheap one. That was also a part of therapy and medication and treatment and friendships working to right my ship of who I was. In the conclusion of all of this, it's many, many years since that happened. This was in the spring of 1994 when this happened, probably in late April. Since that time, I have uh, written a book called Flame Out, tried to sell it, market it. Went to do anything that I could to market it or to sell it. Speak to civic groups, churches. I once called the Raleigh Rotary Club when I had spoken there, and they said, can we help you? I said, yeah, you can give me the names and phone numbers of all the Rotary Clubs in eastern North Carolina. I called them all up on a cold call and asked if I could speak to their groups. They said, sure, we always need speakers. I got, they didn't pay me anything. I got a free lunch, and I may go down sell five to six books or seven books, which beats selling nothing. Something always beats nothing. And so that was the beginning of my speaking. I went to book signings at Barnes & Noble's, Books a Million, Borders when it was still in existence, independent bookstores. And then I spoke to uh, a quality of life committee, the North Carolina Bar Association in Southern Pines, to about 100 attorneys. I got a nice reception. 
They got CLE credit for ethics. And then after speaking with some other groups on ethics for CLE purposes, I, I called the bar, it's North Carolina State Bar, talked to the executive director, Tom Lumsford, and asked him if I could be a provider. Could I speak to groups and they get credit? And he said, yes. And he laughed. He said, you know, Jim, everybody hates to take ethics. This is the most boring courses we have. If you will teach it and just tell your stories, you'll scare people half to death and uh, they'll get credit. So I've done that now for many, many years since that time and spoken to other bar groups and other lawyers in many different states from as far south as Atlanta, Georgia, as far west as Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Iowa, to Kentucky, to Virginia, to Tennessee, many states. It has been one of the highlights of my life that I've been able to do that. One of the most gratifying things is if it's true that relationships are what make us happy, then I have made lots and lots and lots of new relationships. That has helped me get better. I went back to see Jean Spalding a number of years ago and talked to her and asked her if she'd give me some Prozac, and she said no, as I think I've told you. And I remember saying, why not? She said, there's nothing wrong with you. And I remember looking at her and said, that can't be true. She said, it is true. You don't need Prozac. Even though I loved it. She said, how have you gotten so much better? I said, well, there's the two questions you asked about being happy and carefree, and then the Technicolor moments question. I love Technicolor moments. I am a collector of new relationships and friendships. I'm a collector of happy and carefree moments, and I'm a collector of Technicolor moments. And with all due respect to each one of you listening to this podcast, I hope you will be too. I can't tell you to do that because what is best for you might not, what is best for me might not be best for you. At the same time, it has worked for me. I want to close by telling you one of my favorite technique color moments. Last September, on the weekend that Wake Forest's football team lost in double overtime to Clemson, a game that I've always thought we should have won, the next day I had to go to South Carolina to speak to the South Carolina Conference on Workman's Comp attorneys, five, six hundred attorneys were going to be at the Marriott Grand Dunes Hotel. So I go down on Sunday afternoon. It's hot. It's warm, but I have a sweatshirt. And I roll the sleeves up to look cool and shorts. And it's a Wake Forest shirt. What sweatshirt? So I go into the bar, which is full of lawyers around these tables, and I order a glass of wine. The bartender is not in a particularly good mood because none of her Co-workers have shown up that day, and she's on her own. And so I'm grumbling as I'm paying the ticket, and I say, say, I say something like, I may not leave her a tip. She was so ugly or not friendly. And as I said that, apparently I said it too loud, and this lady next to me 
said, well, you know, I would give her a little spare room because her co-workers didn't show up and she's had a rough afternoon. And I turned around and it was a nice lady, a lawyer from North Charleston, South Carolina, who had incidentally had gone to Clemson. So I got my glass of wine, I thought, and walked away after talking to her for a few minutes. And she yelled back and said, you forgot your glass of wine. I turned around and sure enough, it was back on the bar. So I go back to get it, thanked her, walked out, walked out to the terrace outside because it was not so crowded out there. And I remember reading the story online about a month or so before, and I want to share this story with you. And so it was that a couple from the Midwestern part of the United States and their three children had gone to a state in New England for vacation. One morning, the lady had gone on a five-mile run by herself and wanted to reward herself with a double-dip chocolate ice cream cone. So she goes back on the way to find this ice cream shop, walks in, and there's only one customer there eating a donut and drinking a cup of coffee. He turns to look at her, and as he does, her knees buckle, and she thinks about leaving her husband and children in the New England and running off with him. She's so mesmerized by who it was. And it was the actor, Paul Newman. She quickly pays her fee for the ice cream cone in change and cash, walks out, gets the keys to her car to drive back to where they're staying. And as she does, she realizes she does not have her ice cream cone. So she walks back into the ice cream shop, and when she does, the customer is still there, Paul Newman, but the person who served her is gone. He's not in the room. He's gone in the back somewhere. And he looks at her, and he smiles nicely and says, you put it in your purse. I just think that's a great story. So... At the CLE program that afternoon, I told over 150 lawyers that story, and they all laughed, and I thought it was wonderful. At the break, this lawyer came to me and said, Jim, that's a great story. There are two young ladies at our table who are young. They don't know who Paul Newman is. And so he got up and told everybody that story. And I told everybody, this is truly a technicolor moment for me. What happened yesterday and telling you all about it today, because I defined technicolor as being an unforgettable moment, a point in time, a happy point in time that you will remember. And of all my the people I met, talk I, talks I gave, my main memory of that particular weekend is telling that story, leaving my glass of wine on the bar, and the lady who became a relationship friend for mine for those couple of days in Myrtle Beach, saying, you forgot your glass of wine. A technicolor moment can come up so unexpectedly when you are just not realizing it's there. But if you see it, grab onto it and hold on and ride it for all it's worth. Thanks so much. The next podcast is going to be my guest, Dick Horgan. He's a great friend of mine. 
lawyer in Wilmington, North Carolina, by way of California, by way of being a major litigator for many years in New York City and lower Manhattan, and for the last 20 or 30 years doing the state work in Wilmington. You will not want to miss him, Dick Horgan. Thanks so much and have a great week.